Let us pray. Truths lie revealed in this text that we are looking at today, our Father, that will both exalt our hearts with wonder at the Lord Christ and will crush them to the depths beneath his glorious example. Prepare us then, pierce us, and then heal us and strengthen us, and in all things get glory through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's Christmas time. Where does the mind turn when we think of Christmas? We think of the pregnant teenage mother. We think of the donkey that bears her to Bethlehem. Think of Bethlehem. We think of the stable and the manger. We think of the shepherds and the sheep. We think of the angels hailing his birth. Is that where the story starts, though? Is that the beginning of Christ's story? Well, Christianity today, which has become the uh, chronicler of the decay and corruption of Christianity, reports in this title, Most Americans and many Christians don't believe the Son of God existed before the manger. One more time, most Americans and many Christians don't believe the Son of God existed before the manger. Okay, most Americans I get. (laughs) Most Americans think they know everything about the Bible and actually know nothing about the Bible. But most Christians, what do they mean by most Christians don't believe the Son of God existed before the manger? Well, they define them as active Christians who attend attend church at least four times a month. So these aren't just people who say they're Christians. They're in church four times a month. And of those, according to this survey, 37% do not believe that the Son of God existed before the manger. So that means in Christian churches today, one in, according to the survey, one in three people don't think Jesus existed before the manger. Now, I would disagree with the title. I would say 0% of Christians don't believe that Jesus existed before the manger because it is definitional to being a Christian that you believe Jesus is God the Son, that you believe Jesus is God incarnate, that you believe the Scripture that says His goings forth are from of old, from eternal days, Micah 5.2. We just saw last, last week, did we not, that the Scripture starting with Genesis 1.1 points to the full deity of Jesus Christ. Well, if Christ is God, did He have His beginning at manger? God is eternal. God never changes. His existence must be eternal. So uh, in this passage, I'd say even more. Well, let me back up a half step. Without the deity of Christ, the Christian faith completely collapses. But without the deity of Christ, the Godhood of Christ, this passage in particular collapses. The exact point that Paul is making falls to nothing if Jesus was not God before he became a human being, therefore existent before he became a human being. Everything rests on that fact. So we kind of reel at the thought that people who think that they're Christians don't know that basic fact about Jesus. But how many who do know that fact don't know why Paul is talking about it here? Because there's a beautiful little uh, hymn here, perhaps a poem about Jesus in verses 5 through 11. And um, why is it there? Is it just Paul was talking about something else? They thought, oh, you know, I know this snappy little song. Let me just quote that song. No, as we began seeing last week, it fits into the context. And the deity of Christ and the incarnation of Christ has everything to do with the very practical point he's making to the Philippians and through them is making to you and to me. 
So I want to make sure we all understand that. As we think of those who don't understand, let us humbly ask the Lord in our hearts, is it I, Lord? Am I the one who's not getting this? And let us approach this text and find out. Paul in this passage is urging us to think. Verse 5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, to make that point to us, Roman numeral 1, Paul shows us first where Christ's thinking led him. Chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, he shows us where Christ's thinking led him. Uh, Starting in verse 5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Or as the footnote says, did not regard it as something of which to be taken advantage. Well, let's begin by looking at Christ's self-estimation, the way he estimated himself, the way he regarded his state in view of the mission that God was calling him to. And to do that, we've got to begin, number one, with the reality, which is to say the eternal reality of Christ. And that eternal reality, the starting place for Christ, is his godhood. The fact that, as Paul says, although existing in the form of God, and he says he was equal to God. That is, is his starting place. In order, Well, it makes me think of the beginning of Christmas Carol, right? I can't quote it exactly, but what does is, what is Dickens write? Jacob Marley was dead. This must be understood, or nothing wonderful can come of this story. So to understand Christmas Carol, you've got to start out with understanding Marley's dead, or you won't get what follows. Well, to understand what Paul is saying here, we've got to get Christ is God. Christ eternally existed in the form of God, which is to say, if you had looked at Christ, the Son of God, you would have been seeing God. He was the perfect expression and radiation of deity. And everything that God the Father is as God, and everything that God the Holy Spirit is as God, God the Son is as God. What I mean is, is the Father all-powerful? Is the Spirit all-powerful? Then the Son is all-powerful. Is the Father everywhere present, and the Spirit everywhere present? Then the Son is everywhere present. Is the Father immutable? He doesn't change as to His nature or purposes. Is the Spirit immutable? Well, then the Son is immutable, and you can go down the entire long list of descriptions of who God is, and every one of those things will be true of Christ. And before the incarnation, if I may say it this way, were we, if we had the eyes to look at Christ, if we had eyes that could see Him, then all we would see is God. There would be nothing to Him before the incarnation that was created, because He was the Creator. There would be nothing to Him that was limited, because He is infinite. There would be nothing to him that was unaware of anything because he would be all-knowing. So you see, and on and on down, this would be all the truth that would have to be said of the second person. And that changes with the incarnation, as we will see. But before the incarnation, he was God. Now, we need to put this in the context of the status-conscious Philippians. As Roman citizens, status would have meant everything to them. The, The climb of the, uh, the status-hungry aspirants to greatness was, was a trail of titles and of accomplishments and of points of pride that everybody aspired for, that everybody wanted. And so if you want to think of it this way, of course being God would be at the top. Really, strictly speaking, it wouldn't even be at the top of the ladder, would it? Being God would be 
off the ladder because it's on the scale of uncreated and eternal. So that was Christ. And to the status conscious Roman citizen, well, that would be the, the pinnacle. That would be the top point of everything. And to think of ever willingly leaving that point in any way would just be absolutely unthinkable. It would be absolutely absurd. I just needed to make that point here. We'll return to it later and talk more about it. But so notice that from all eternity, Christ was where every aspirant to greatness in Rome would have wanted to be, over everything, at the top of everything. But now this brings us to the first of three steps down for Christ in this passage. And that is number two, the regarding. The regarding. And this is what Paul holds up as our model. He says in verse 5, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although existing in the form of God, did not regard, underline that, he did not estimate, he did not esteem equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, before I approach this directly, take a step aside with me for a second and think of the eternal plan of salvation of the Trinity. Now, God, having decreed to permit the fall, saw humanity as fallen, hopeless, dead, guilty. And in the council chambers of the Trinity, uh, the plan of salvation was formed. And everything in this plan of salvation hinges on one particular event in history. The incarnation of the Son of God. Why? Well, because everything was thrown awry by the sin of man. It was a man who sinned. It was a man who brought sin into the world, into the human family. It was a man who God had put over creation, responsible for it. And with his embrace of sin, his rebellion, he'd brought death not only to himself and all his progeny, he'd brought death to the creation. He'd thrown everything off course. And so to, to set that right, the debt to God's honor, the debt to God's justice, would have to be paid by a, well, I guess an angel could do it. They're greater in might and power, right? Could an angel do it? Well, no, it wasn't an angel's sin that brought it into the human family. Well, how about a, a goat or a lamb? How about a lot of goats and lambs? How about all the goats and lambs? No. No, because it wasn't their sin. No, the blood of animals can't remove sin. No, the price would have to be paid by a human being, and yet it would have to be a human being who is perfectly, not just innocent, but perfectly righteous, who unlike Adam and every last natural born son of his, had fully fulfilled God's law. And not only that, a human being who was perfectly righteous and whose life was of infinite value so that he could satisfy justice not for himself alone, but for all the Father gave him because scripture teaches us very plainly that of that mass of fallen guilty lost dead people God selected a vast number and gave them to the son as Ephesians says he he elected them to be in Christ as Jesus said he gave them to the son to give eternal life to them and commissioned the son to go and win their salvation and what's more we'll be looking at this uh, in the candlelight service what's more to set everything right but again, if there is no incarnation, none of that can happen. Do you see now? Everything hinges on the Son of God becoming a human being. Everything. In fact, let me just put it in Paul's terms. Paul says in verse 6, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's turn that around. If he had regarded equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
there would have been no incarnation. He would have continued to exist solely in the form of God and we would all be lost. And creation would continue in chaos and despair until God simply destroyed it. You see? So everything hinges on this. Thank God, if you're a child of God, thank God every day, all the day, that Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped and to use to his own advantage. Because this was the key to our salvation. Now, who could blame him if he had, though? What did he gain from it? Who who could blame him from saying, you know what? Dive into that cesspool. Dive through the seed of that outhouse to save people. No, thank you. No, thank you. I think I'll stay right where I am. Who could blame him? Who could force him? Who could coerce him? And yet he did it. Why did he do it? He tells us. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, every time we see a sent passage, we know that Christmas didn't begin in the manger. Him who sent me, I came to do the will of him who sent me. Christ said that was his food. That was his delight to do God's will. And why? John 14, 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up, let us go from here. And he goes to his arrest and trial. That the world may know that I love the Father. So he does what he does for love of the Father. Ah, but wait, there's more. That was John 6.38, John 14.31, but now consider John 13.1. Wonderful verse. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. This is why he went to trial and crucifixion. Love for the Father who sent him and love for his own, the elect who God had given him to save and to win eternal life for and give eternal life to. So it was love that drove Jesus to do this. It was love that led to his not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is the first step down then. It's the step in in Christ's thinking, if you will, He didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, letter B takes us to the second step of the three, Christ's self-emptying. We've seen his self-estimation. Now we see his self-emptying in verse 7. Didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, any thinking person, I think, reading this with his brain on would immediately wonder, emptied himself of what? Of what did he empty himself? And a great deal of thought has been given this and countless gallons of ink has been spilt on it and theses and articles and commentaries have been written on this. We won't read them all together today, but we will talk about it and hit the highlights. And the first thing I want to talk with you about is what this cannot mean. So what, what cannot this possibly mean? Here are explanations that have been proposed that cannot possibly be true. Of what did he empty himself? Well, he cannot have emptied himself of his deity, of his godhood. Now, you could see somebody brand new to this might might say, well, to become a man, I guess he had to stop being God, right? If he didn't know the rest of the Bible, you could see see that logic. If he's going to be man, he can't be God. So he must have emptied himself of his godhood and, and, and then become a man. But what is the fatal problem with that? 
It's in the axiom I've taught you about being God many times. How does that go? If you ever weren't God, you never will be. And if you ever were God, you always will be. Why? Because part of the nature of God is that he is immutable and eternal. He always exists and he doesn't change. And God cannot stop being God. If we're talking about something that was able to stop being God, oh, then it really wasn't God in the first place. <laughs> or if we talk about somebody being God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses do, well, that simply cannot be done. Anything with a birthday is not God. That nature is not God. So he cannot have, in, have emptied himself of deity. We can rule that out. Well, but then here's another version that some have come up with, that he, he emptied himself of some of the attributes of deity. And this is known as the kenosis theory. If you want to write it down, well, even if you don't, either way, it's spelled K-E-N-O-S-I-S. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. You don't need it. I'm just telling you. It's from the verb kenoo, which is translated emptied here, and a, a, a noun form of that verb, kenosis, emptying. And so here, here's, here's where that one came from. In, uh, 18th, in the 1800s, these um, pointy-headed academics noticed, well, they, they, they saw uh, the uh, assured results of subtle science, which is a phrase that makes us chuckle today, but they, they saw in the, the assured results of settled science and, and German scholarship, well, they knew for a fact Moses couldn't have wrote, written the Pentateuch, and Isaiah couldn't have written Isaiah, and the world couldn't have been created like Moses says in Genesis, and the Exodus couldn't have happened like the Bible says, and on and on. All these, the science was settled. And then they look at this Jesus, and he, he believes all those things. <laughs> He believes Jesus, Jesus believes Moses wrote the Pentateuch. He believes in the Exodus, creation, I mean the whole nine yards and the whole Ten Commandments. And he believes in all of it. So how do you explain that and, and, and still call yourself a Christian? Ah, I know. When he emptied himself to become a real human being, he emptied himself of some of his divine attributes. So he, 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 knew, he no longer knew the things that God knew. So he didn't know all the wonderful things that the German scholars had discovered. And poor man, he just had to go around with his Torah, with his Bible, and believing what the people of that day. And so they explain that's why Jesus teaches error. He didn't mean to. It's just that's part of being a real human being. He had laid his divine attributes by some of them and just taught as a man. So, so there was error in his teaching uh, in his days of the earth. Now, what's the trouble with that? Well, innumerable. But one of the troubles with that, again, is people who've been going here for a long time would know, can you divide God up into parts and set parts of God aside? What is that doctrine called? It's called the doctrine of the simplicity of God. That God is one. He's not like a Lego structure. He's not, he's not like a pie that's been sliced up, sliced into parts. So you, there's not one part that's His holiness and one part that it's knowledge. And so you can pull this part out and pull this part out and still have God. Everything God is, God is all the time at the same time, to the nth degree. He is always omnipotent. He's always omniscient. He's always holy, righteous. He's always love, justice. He's always holiness, mercy. And everything that the Bible says about God, He always is at the same time. And that is what God is. It's not what God has. It's not like you could shave my beard off, I'd still be me. That's the thing I have. It's not who I am. But the attributes of God are who God is. You remove one of those, he's not God anymore. 
And so it is not possible that Jesus would remove some of his attributes. Then he wouldn't be God anymore and go back to the first one. You can't stop being God if you ever are God. Third, the idea that he, he just stopped accessing his divine attributes. He just laid them aside so that he didn't have the use of them anymore. And that doesn't really work either. He may not have availed himself of them at all the time, but he didn't lock them in a cupboard. Because he, he often says, my works testify to who I am. My works, not just like a prophet doing things that God enables him to do. My works, he says, testify to who I am. And when he stops the wind and the storm on the sea, men don't say, isn't that a great thing God, that God did? What do they say? Who is this? Because it's a divine act of Jesus, as was the turning the water into wine. He didn't stop being God. All the time he walked around, he was all doing all the things that the second person of the Trinity does. And that means, as he hung on the cross, Colossians 1 says, all things hold together in Christ. So that means, as he hung on the cross, he was holding together the cross he hung on. God the Son was holding together the nails that transfixed him to the cross. When the Roman soldiers spat on him and, and beat him, God the Son was keeping them alive and holding their spittle in order as it struck him on the face. This is the mystery of the incarnation. He never stopped being God or doing the works of God when he became a man. So it can't mean any of those things. So let's look, number two, at what it does mean. What does it mean when Paul says that Christ emptied himself? Well, first let's talk a moment about the verb, ekenosin, he emptied himself. And I, I want you to notice, and this will sound very simple, but it's actually very important. Notice that Christ is both the subject and the object of the verb. He's both the subject and the object. That is, he does it, and he does it to himself. He emptied himself, it says. He emptied himself. So, it, it, it does not say that he emptied himself of something. There's no modifier. You, you search in vain. This is why people have to speculate, because the passage doesn't say that he emptied himself of something. And that's because if Paul had wanted to say that, there are verbs that would have done that job better. But he used a word that means to, to, to become empty, to uh, become uh, of no repute, or to become, as it were, nothing. It helps to think it's the opposite of if he had said to enrich himself or to fill himself. He didn't enrich himself. He didn't fill himself he emptied himself. And even more than looking at the word itself, we understand by looking at the context, letter B. Because look at what follows. He emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. There, that's what Paul means. These two adverbial participles of means explain what emptying means. Here's what emptying means. It means that he took the form of a slave. It means that he made himself in the likeness of men. You see, that's the real meaning of it. So, first of all, by taking the form of a slave. Well, I would point out, uh, before we get uh, away from it, the reflexive pronoun himself is stuck out in front to emphasize the fact nobody did this to Jesus. This was an act of the Son of God. Himself he emptied. Someone else didn't empty him. It was himself 
that he emptied. And then there's another emphasis in the next clause. I'll, I'll just translate it extremely literally for you. But himself he emptied the form of a slave taking in the likeness of men becoming. So you see, the, 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 the stress is on the shocker that he who is in the form of God, who is equal to God, did this to himself emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. And not just of a creature. That would, that would be an infinite step down, literally. Do you see? For the Son of God to take on the nature of a creature, any creature, an angel, uh, a, a, an emperor, that would have been an infinite step down for the Creator. But not just a, a, an angel or an emperor. He took on the form of a slave. So what this is then is subtraction by addition. Christ did not empty himself by taking something away from himself, do you see? Which he couldn't do. He emptied himself by taking something to himself. And what was that? Our nature. You say, I'm so insulted. This was a step down for him? Yes, it was. (laughs) Yes, it was. It was an infinite step down for him to take on the nature of fallen men and women apart from sin. That was an infinite step down. It was subtraction by addition. And he became what we all are. We're all slaves of God. But he more so, uh, Isaiah speaks of the Messiah as the servant of Yahweh, the slave of Yahweh, who in Isaiah 53 is bruised for the iniquities of his people and offers himself to, rec- uh, to redeem them. But uh, you don't have to go there. You can just go to Jesus' own words in Matthew 20, verses 27 and 28. Familiar to you, but note them down. Matthew 20, 27 and 28, where Jesus, speaking to his ambitious disciples, who are quibbling about who can be first, he says, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your what? Slave. And what's the example he holds out? Same one Paul does. Just as the Son of Man did not come, what? To be served, but what? To serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So you be like me. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. It was the form of a slave that he took on. And just get that clash. Eternally existing in the form of God, taking on the form of a slave. Same word just to make sure we feel that jarring clash. Form of God, form of slave. Really God, really a slave, you see. This is the incarnation. That's the first part of what self-emptying means. The second, by being made in the likeness of men. So for the Son of God to become a human being is a greater step down than it would be for you and me to become a dog or to become a snail or to become an amoeba. Why? Those are all creatures, and what are we? Creatures. What's he? Creator. For him to take on any created nature is a step down. But he took on the nature of the race that was the, the, the cause of the whole problem. Because sin entered into the world through the sin of Adam. Romans 5.12. And he took on the nature of a son of Adam. You see? So he took on this nature... And let me take you back. I said existing in the form of God before the incarnation meant that had we the eyes to see Christ, all we'd see was God. But now this is no longer true. Now when we look at his person, yes, he's still God. That never changes, but what else do we see? 
He's created. He's taken on a full human nature. He's taken on the nature of humanity, you see. This is a step down. Now, let me take a step back again with you to make sure that we all feel the shock of this to the original readers. What have we said about Roman culture and the culture in Philippi being a Roman colony? Well, to them, this trajectory we're looking at here would would not just be shameful. It would be unthinkable. It, It would be unimaginable that somebody would do something like this just I mean, it would beyond blow their mind. What would possibly possess somebody to take a downward trajectory? Because, you you see, to them, the greatest aspiration is the aspiration of the aristocrat to climb up title by title, distinction by distinction, to get as high as you can. And when you get high, to seek to get higher. In fact, um, Senator Pliny the Younger, who lived just a little bit after this time, early 2nd century, let me quote him. Listen, he says, It is more uglifying to lose than never to get praise. Let me make that a little simpler syntax. It is more uglifying to lose praise than never to get praise. And what does Jesus do here? Lose praise? No. He gives it up. Himself he emptied. He did not regard it something to be grasped and exploited. And in a few words we'll read that he humbled himself. This would be inconceivable for him deliberately to give up the highest honor and do it to himself. Not be compelled to do it. Not be forced to do it against his will. But willingly to do it. I just, why? What? I... They wouldn't even have the words to understand that. And then Paul says, yeah, and this is the way I want you to think. Now we say, boy, I'm, I'm sure glad I'm nothing like that. That must have been very painful for them to read because we don't care what people think of us, right? We don't care about right, I heard that. We don't care about status or prestige. We don't care how many followers we have on Twitter, how many likes we get for a post. We don't care about any of that stuff, what our neighbors think about us or say about us. We don't, we don't care about how we're perceived and who we're perceived as belonging to. We don't care about any of those things. Oh, no, we care about all those things. <laughs> we, every thought that we have of he's not my kind, that's not my sort, this is that kind of thinking. We're very much like them. And this thinking of Jesus, it's just as against our thinking as it was against the thinking of the Philippians. So, two steps down. His self-estimation, his self-emptying, and now let her see the third step, his self-humbling. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see this humbling in two points. Let's look, number one, at the first point. What's the first point? The first point is the starting point of his incarnate career, his career as a man, being found in appearance as a man. In other words, now if you looked at him, you would not see just God, you would see a human being, because that's what he was. The Son of God added to himself the true makeup of a human being. If you'd like the technical word for it, for what we're looking at here, what we're seeing here, the the term is the hypostatic union of two natures, which is to say Christ is one person with two natures. You and I are one person with one nature. 
God is one nature with three persons. God the Son is one person with two natures. And these two natures are united in one person. They're not warring. They're not separate. How do you see that? Well, you see that in the fact that Jesus never refers to himself as us. As if to say, my human nature and my divine nature. Jesus' divine nature never talks to his human nature. His human nature never talks to his divine nature. When Jesus says, I, he simply means his person. And what is his person? He's the God-man. He has a complete human nature and a complete divine nature. His, compu- his human nature has its own, has its mind, has its will, has its soul. It is a complete human nature as the divine nature is a complete nature. So this is why Jesus is not half and half. He's not part and part. Uh, Christians mean well and unintentionally speak heresy when they say Jesus is half God, half man. No, he's not. Or when they say he's part God, part man. No, he's, he's not. He's entirely man and he's entirely God. You say, how can you do that? And my flippant answer is, well, as soon as you need to do it, I will explain it to you fully. That's, but I, you see, I don't think you can explain it. I, no, I can't, and you'll never need to do it. This is Jesus alone. He is, he is unique in all of creation. Only he is one person with two natures. This is the mystery of the incarnation. Without ceasing to become God, Jesus took on to himself a human nature at his conception in Mary. And, and so you see, this is why it, it doesn't make any sense to say, well, then he had to give up some of his attributes. To be human, he does. Then what is he now? He's still human. The man Christ Jesus, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, of the glorified Christ. He will always be a man. He'll always be God. He will always be the God-man. Perfectly gone, perfectly man. I will email you uh, tomorrow, Lord willing, some statements of this that you have to read very slowly, but are helpful in understanding this, this deep mystery, this deep truth, which can be simply said in saying Jesus is one person with a human nature and a divine nature. So anything you can say about either nature, you can say about Jesus, because Jesus is one person, one person with two natures. Being found in appearance as man, that means to say, we, when we see him, what we discover him to be is a man. He's configured like a man. He's a human being. So like the hymn says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. So this is the first point, but now I want to hurry on number two to its worst point. How many did you wrote in second in the blank? And you have to cross that out now. So, I hear someone did. <laughs> so the first point is he is found in appearance as a man, but the worst point is he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, to feel this, we need to remind ourselves, was hum- to us, is humility a virtue? Sure. Even pagans generally speak of humility as a virtue in our culture. We don't like a proud person. We like a humble person. In that culture... Not a virtue. This word was not used as a virtue. It was not admired. It was not sought after. It was not held up as something to be desired. To be humble is to be demeaned, degraded, scraping, obsequious. It was contemptible. It was not something anybody would look at. It was not not something virtuous. So when Paul says he humbled himself, he might as well have said he degraded himself. 
He humiliated himself. He tore himself down to get the feel of what he's saying. So humility was not a virtue, but the Son of God to save us needed to humble. And then again, what's the object? Himself. It was not done to him. He humbled himself. Again, he's both the subject and the object. He humbled himself. He stoops and he stoops. Charles Spurgeon said it very well. He said, blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops. And when he has stooped to reach our level and becomes man, he still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. How low? Paul says it. To the point of death. (gasps) Unthinkable. The author of life dying? Oh, not just dying. Read on. Even death on a cross. Let me remind you, the word cross was not even spoken in polite society. It was like a cuss word. A Roman would look at us wearing crosses as pieces of jewelry. They'd look at us like we had an eye in the middle of our forehead. Why are you you wearing this degrading, obscene article on yourself? But this is the death that Jesus died. He humbled himself to death on the cross. There's a a faithful German scholar named Martin Hengel who helps us feel this. So listen to what he says. I'll read it in German. No, I won't. I don't know German. I don't know German. Frankfurter, that's about it. And Gesundheit. Hengel says, Anyone who is present at the worship of the churches founded by Paul in the course of his mission would inevitably have seen a direct connection between the emptied himself taking the form of a slave and he humbled himself and was obedient to death even the death on the cross death on the cross was the penalty for slaves as everyone knew it was not for citizens it was for slaves as such it symbolized extreme humiliation shame and torture that the death of the cross is the last bitter consequence of the taking the form of a slave and stands in the most abrupt possible contrast with the beginning of the hymn, with its description of the divine essence and the pre-existence of the crucified figure. Existing in the form of God, taking the form of a slave, dying on a cross. This, This is the descent of the Son of God for our salvation. This is both the reason and the fruit of, God's, of, of God the Son's incarnation. Let me uh, quote uh, Southern Baptist theologian James Pettigrew Boyce from the 1800s. He says very well, it is thus that he who is, and, and he, what he's talking about is how the mystery and the marvel of Christ being at the same time God and man. He says, it is, the, it is thus that he who is said to fill the universe was contained in the womb of Mary. That he whose are the cattle upon a thousand hills felt the pangs of famishing hunger. That he who made the world had no place to lay his head. And hanging upon the cross, how amazing the mystery. As God, he enjoys supreme happiness in the unchanged blessedness of the divine nature. As man, he is in vital agony, both of body and soul. As God, He enjoys the eternal outflowings of the mutual love of the Father and of the Spirit and of Himself. As man, 
He's the object of the Father's wrath with the agonizing cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? With a loud cry, the mortal man dies, but the eternal life of God remains unchanged. This is the marvel of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is the thinking of Christ. This is the mind of Christ. This is how He thought. He thought who, though existing from all eternity in the form of God, did not esteem being equal with God a thing to be exploited and to cling to, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a slave. He emptied Himself. He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself taking our nature to Himself. He humbled Himself to die the death of the cross. And it's not just a social shame what what is added to the death on the cross. The curse of God. Because the book of Deuteronomy says a curse is on everyone who hangs on a tree. And what's a cross? It's a tree. And who's hanging on that tree? God the Son. And what's hanging on Him? A curse. Why? For those he came to save. So that's the thinking of Christ. So Paul is not just saying this to preach Christ, although that's worth doing all by itself. And many a fine sermon has been preached on this section with no reference to what comes before and no reference to what comes after. But why did Paul bring this up? What's the point of talking about Christ? Because he did have a point. And again, I say, if the point were simply to talk about Christ, that's a great point. That's a sufficient point. That works entirely for me. But he had a greater point. And I want to remind you of it. And we're going to rewind to do that. Roman numeral 2. We saw where Christ's thinking led him. Now let's see where Christ's thinking leads us. And that's chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So we've got to rewind to the top of the chapter. Where do we start? Letter A. It leads us to ponder our shared riches in Christ. Verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. We talked about this last week, so I just remind you this week that whatever our differing status is, whether we're slave or free, whether we're master or slave, whether we're young or old, whatever our ethnicity, whatever our income or lack, whatever our education or lack, whatever, these are our, if we're in Christ, these are all ours. We all share this equally. The slave has just as much of these compassions and encouragement and fellowship of the Spirit. The slave has just as much of that as the master. The barbarian just as much as the Scythian, just as much as the Jew, just as much as the Greek. These are ours in Christ. And let me make this point now that we've studied this passage. They're all ours in Christ because Christ took these three steps down. These things are ours in Christ because Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. They're ours because He emptied Himself and took on human nature. They're ours because He humbled Himself to the point of the death on the cross. That's the reason we have all these things. They are our fruit from His self-humbling. That's our riches in Christ, which are ours because of the thinking of Christ and the deeds of Christ. Secondly, it leads us to pursue lived-out unity in Christ, verses 2 through 4. Since every last one of us who is in Christ share all these things in Christ, then we must pursue these virtues 
in our fellowship in Christ. Read again. Fulfill my joy, Paul says, that you think the same way by maintaining the same love, being united in spirit, thinking on one purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain glory. Oh, there's an interesting word. What's that word, vain glory? Kenodoxion. You say, keno, that sounds familiar. Did you say keno earlier? Yes, I said kenosis, emptying. That's what this word is, empty glory. Oh, do you think Paul was making a point here? Yeah, he was. We're all about our vain glory, but God veined himself. We're all about empty glory, but Christ emptied himself, and that's why we have blessings in him. Oh, but then he goes on and he says, but with humility of mind. Oh, there's tapeno frosune, that first part, tapeno. Well, that's the root of the verb. Christ humbled himself. He humbled himself, and now I'm called to have humility of mind. Regarding one another is more important than yourselves, not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, you see, we need to see here that this unity he's talking about isn't just a serendipitous unity. Isn't that lucky? Isn't it lucky that we happened on this unity? Isn't it lucky that we just have all these things in common that make us such a nice place to be? No, it's not that. It's not automatic either. It's not something that just happens. That You know, if you, you take one gospel and you shake it together with some people and you just splash it out, hey, there's unity just like that. Nobody has to do anything. No, no, this is a costly unity. This, this is achieved by humility. Oh, let me say it right. This is achieved by self-humbling and self-sacrifice. Wow, if only we had a good model for that, right? That's hard. That's, that's unnatural. It's against our grain to humble ourselves and empty ourselves. And if only we had a model we could follow. Oh, you're in luck. <laughs> There's just exactly the perfect model of that. And that's just what Paul talks about here because that's why he holds out this model. So we know what it looks like to preserve this unity and pursue this unity. It looks like what Jesus did when he came to win our salvation. So Paul doesn't shame them into it. He doesn't guilt them into it. He doesn't duty us into it. He holds up Christ and says, look at your Savior. Think like your Savior. Live like your Savior. And you say, you know, that just sounds like what it means to be a Christian. Yep, that's basically the formula. That is basically what it is. And so this is, uh, this is what it is to pursue our unity in Christ. And then letter C, it leads us to pattern the very mind of Christ. And there's the verse that led us into today's section. Verse 5, to pattern the very mind of Christ. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though existing in the form of God, and so forth, you think like he thought, Paul says, to you and to me. So there it is. Now, of course, Paul exalts Christ because that's what he does. That's what Paul does. That's what he's all about. But he exalts Christ specifically to urge you and me to think like Jesus thought, to pattern ourselves after Jesus. And so, do we? And you're saying, close in prayer, close in prayer, close in prayer. No, let's be specific about it. Let's come up with some for instances, okay? 
For us here at Copperfield Bible Church, you say, no, I'd really rather you talk about those Roman citizens 1,900 years ago. Yeah, I, I hear you. I'd rather too. But, but look at where we are here. So you say, what do we have in this church? Well, I love so many things about this church. And one of the things I love is that we've got a, a spread of, of, of ages. We've got people in their 60s, 70s, 80s. We've got people in their single digits and teens and 20s. And we've got a real spread of people. So what would you think if somebody came in claiming to be a Christian and he saw all these gray hair, gray heads or shiny heads, and he looked around and he said, oh, well, this is obviously a, a church for older people. I wouldn't want to go to this church. It's a church for older people. How would you, I'm talking to you older people, how would you think about that? You'd think, well, that's not a Christian way of thinking, right? That, that's a foolish way of thinking. Because what he should see is, you should see, look at the wisdom here. Look at the experience here. Look at the, the wealth that I could benefit from uh, in, in all of these wise people and all that they know that I haven't, I haven't learned and all they've been through that I haven't been through, how I could really benefit for that. And you would say they should really stay here. And you know what? I, I agree with you. That's absolutely true. That's wisdom right there. Let me ask you another question. How much have you sacrificed to befriend younger people and reach out to them and give them the benefit of your wisdom? How much have you humbled yourself and lowered yourself to go out of your way to make an effort to befriend and give the benefit of what you've learned to these younger people? I'll go back years ago, and there was a young man who came to our church for some time faithfully and uh, came to leave the church. And one of the things he said to me, he was very happy to be in a church with older people in it. But he said in all the years he was here, not one person reached out to him ever. Took him out to lunch, had him over for dinner, talked to him, shared with him. Nobody did that. I knew another man who was a single man here for years. I took him out to dinner one night, talking with him. I asked him if he'd been out to dinner with many people. Nobody had ever had him over for dinner or out for dinner. Oh, that's not good, is it? So thank you. Uh, that's like a counter amens, which is kind of an amen, so thank you. But now you're a, you're a young person here, and you're thinking, go get him, Pastor. That's exactly right. Okay, well, let's talk to you now. You're here with all of your youth and your enthusiasm. Suppose older people were to look at you and say, you know what, young people are ruining everything. I don't want young people in this church. They feel so entitled. They're, they're just so full of themselves. They're so full of energy. They just want to do, 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 and go, go, go. And they don't really value you, and, and you think they really ought to value you. It's not, a, it's not something to be ashamed of that you're young. It's God's gift that you're young, that you're where you are. You matter where you are. People ought to see that, right? I agree with you. That's absolutely true. So let me ask you, how much of your youthful energy have you used to serve the older people here? How many opportunities have you looked for to say, you know, does your lawn need mowing, or do you ever need... Uh, anything done or lifted or carried, you know, here's my number. You just call me. I'd be happy to come over. Maybe we could have coffee together and talk while I'm over or something like that. But I would love to help you. I'd love to, to uh, and, and let me say also just from both sides, just simply reaching out. You know, I'd like to know more about your walk with Christ, how you came to Christ. Uh, you, I'd like to learn from you. You know, I'd like to, could we have coffee after church or something? You know, this goes both ways. And don't you see, I could, I could run down this list. I could turn it into ethnicity. I could turn it into level of education. I could learn, turn it into style of music or just anything you care to and just ask. So how are each of us modeling the mind of Christ in pursuing the unity that Paul is calling to? Because remember, he talked about who Jesus was and what Jesus did. 
to call you and me to think that same way. That same way, you say, so why don't you come to the prayer meeting? Oh, because uh, it's uncomfortable and, and because, uh, you know, I get bored with people's prayers. Um, is that the mind of Christ, though? Why don't you go to this fellowship or that fellowship that you're able to go to? Oh, this reason, that reason. Is that the mind of Christ, though? In every one of these examples I've given, my question would simply be, is that the mind of Christ? Let me ask another question. You say, Pastor, I think you've asked plenty of questions. Well, I've got one more question, okay? You ready? Somebody thinks she's ready. If Christ had thought that way, would we be saved? If Christ thought the way we did, would we be saved? Or would he still be in the form of God and only God? And we be on the way to our appointment with the judgment of God. See, am I saying something more than Paul said? I think I'm saying exactly what Paul said. I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. We don't get to write people off as beneath us if we say we're saved by God the, the Son. <laughs> There's nobody beneath us if we weren't beneath the love of God the Son. Amen. Amen. Such a glorious Savior. Such a glorious Savior, though, that there's a hymn we don't sing. The refrain is, Out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe, only His great eternal love made my Savior go. Amen. Such love of God, no cost was too great for the Father in sending His own dear Son, for the Son in humbling Himself for our sake and for our salvation. And such is the mind to which you and I are called, brother, sister, you and I. So without the mind of Christ, simply put, forget unity. And for that matter, forget church without the mind of Christ. All we're left with is a, is, is a coalition of warring factions. Sounds like a political party. That's what it would be. That's what it would be. Just a coalition of warring factions without the mind of Christ. Ah, but with the mind of Christ, church can be just a little outpost of heaven here on this battlefield. And that's what we're called to make it. And we're given the best incentive and we're given the best model. Amen? Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, these truths so humble us and so speak to us in such a personal way. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will make sure every one of us hears every word that you meant us to hear today that he will help us remember those words and that he will empower us and enable us to do something about them beyond forgetting them as quickly as we can. Help us to remember and get to work on them. Transform us to the likeness of Christ for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for our closing hymn. Here I get to say another thing about Christmas punctuation. The title of this is God Rest Ye Merry, Gentlemen. So the hymn is not speaking to merry gentlemen and telling them to rest. The hymn is speaking to all gentlemen and telling them to rest merry because Christ our Savior is born this Christmas day. And all God's people said, Oh, God rest ye merry, gentlemen. God rest ye merry.
continue thinking from another angle of the significance of Christ coming this Friday. Friday, right? This Christmas Eve? I knew that. Uh, at 6 o'clock, I hope you all will rejoin us then. Now may our good Lord, who, though, exa- though actually existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself for us and our salvation, even to the death on the cross. May that Lord grant us to think as he did and humble ourselves to serve others in love as he served us. Amen.